All right, ladies, good morning. We're going to go ahead and get started. Um, this is April, and so we have two sessions left of Wellspring, and which is hard to believe. Um, but actually, when you think back to August, or I guess it was September, it's kind of, yeah, I can kind of believe it. I tallied up a little bit of what we've done this year. So by the time we finish next week or next session, we'll have had 16 sessions. We will have had 13 different teachers. We had three of them double up. Um, we will have had 11 lessons on discipline one, the heart, four lessons for discipline two, which is about our home, six lessons on discipline three, about ministry, and of course some of those have blended together. That's why if you added that up, that would not equal 16. Um, so as we think about how we're coming to the end of this year of Wellspring, we are going to do something different next week. It's our last one. For those of you who have done Wellspring before, you may remember, I think it's been maybe two years since we've done this, where we have the whole group stay together and we share and basically answer the question, how has God used Wellspring in your life this year? Or how have you seen God at work in your life through Wellspring? And it's just so nice to hear from other ladies that aren't even in your discussion group and hear just how they're growing and what God has been doing in their lives. So I know that's that can be intimidating. Some of us don't love to speak in front of a lot of people, um, but just consider it a way to encourage and sharpen one another. It's just very encouraging to hear from each other in that setting. So we're going to have a, a lesson just like normal next week. Then we will stay in here and we'll give you instruction that day, but um, just be prepared to share. Um, and then we're going to have a little bit of time, about 15 minutes, to go into your own discussion group just to kind of end the year, say goodbye, share a little bit more, and then that will be the end. So today we have our own Michelle Kyle, who is one of our discussion group leaders. She's going to go over the disciplines with us. And then we have my own little brother who is going to come and teach the lesson and it's a discipline three lesson turns out it's also it's going to bleed into discipline two and i'm sure discipline one as well but anyway all right all right let's pray first lord thank you so much that we get to be here at wellspring today thank you that your word is powerful and we pray that you help us to learn from it in jesus name amen so my husband and I have a real problem with quoting movie lines and TV show lines. It's quite shameful, actually. But we were even joking that we could have like a full-on conversation with only movie lines. And I thought, that is so sad. What we should be doing is quoting psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to each other, not memorized lines. And then I thought, for that matter, how is it that I can recite 100 digits of pi and every single president that's ever been but not memorize scripture and so I thought that is terrible and so I thought well then it hit me those things were set to song and homeschool moms will know what I mean you know but memory it, it's the repetition it's just repetition that's how we learn so I thought how many times did I have to listen to those homeschool songs to memorize those little facts so then I started noticing repetition in other things. So a couple of books that I've read recently are How Readest Thou, you know, that little tiny book at the Welcome Center. I think we give it out to visitors, but 
at the end of each section it says, how readest thou? Asking, how seriously do you read the Bible? And then I was also reading the book from last month by Brooks called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And when he's discussing how to fight sin, he says um, over and over, just to seriously consider or solemnly consider to you know, do some self-evaluation of your motivation for that sin. So that, I was like, okay, so there's repetition everywhere. And then a few weeks ago, I was thinking about that, and I realized that in our disciplines, there's some repetition. So let's turn over our notebooks and read our disciplines. And as we read, try to think or notice what's repeated. Okay, so discipline one. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. And discipline number two. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. Discipline three, with a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. And where do we read about the gospel? In the word of God. So the three things repeated are the faithful woman of God, a heart fixed on God and God's word. So number one, the faithful woman of God. Let's read the reason that our elders developed Wellspring in the first place. So let's read the purpose now. To equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, just thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. So the goal of Wellspring is to equip and encourage us to be faithful women of God. Did you notice that it also speaks to our hearts and the word of God? There's that repetition again. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. The second thing repeated is a heart fixed on God. Hebrews 12:2a says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. I remember talking to one of my sisters in Oregon. Not, she's not an actual sister. She's my sister in Christ. So I just went to church with her. <laughs> but I was telling her that I was struggling with my quiet time because I had small children at home and I was working part-time. And she was a mother of 12, 12 children. And she was just one of those women that oozed the word of God. And so she told me to remember at the stage of life I was in, quiet time does not look like it does for other people. She didn't beat herself up if her quiet time got interrupted. And she had scripture all around her house. There were little note cards by the sink. There were signs on her walls. She had CDs for her kids in the church, for CD, Bible CDs for her kids in the car. She surrounded herself with the word of God in one form or another. She didn't if she didn't get to her quiet time until the afternoon, that was okay. She also made sure to have her kids at church any time the word of God was proclaimed. Seriously, she was like Wonder Woman. So, but she was a great example of having your heart set on God. It kind of reminded me of this uh, driving test that I had my, not a test, it was like a class for my older girls to take. And they had like obstacle courses set up and a spin car where they could learn how to control a spin. 
and they let the parents drive through a couple of the obstacle courses. And one of them had like zigzag cones, you know, a lot like the construction zones here where it says, keep left, keep right. And so the instructor guy said, I want you to look at the horizon, not at the individual little cones. And it actually was a smoother drive. So in a similar way, if we focus more on the Lord and not ourselves and all of our little cones, then we will be more controlled and smooth. Of course, we still have to do our little cone things like fix owies and laundry and dishes and laundry and dishes. But we should always keep our hearts fixed on the Lord. The third thing repeated is the Word of God. And because we all go to Grace Bible Church, we all know how very important the Word of God is. It's even in our name, Grace Bible Church. So, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Psalm 119.11 says, Your word I have treasured in my heart, that I may not sin against you. Romans 12.2 says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. How do we renew our minds? Through reading his word. And finally, Proverbs 4.13 says, Take hold of instruction and do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you so much for your word. Help us to read it repeatedly, and please help us to guard our hearts and to fix them on you, to grow in the knowledge and understanding of you, so we can be faithful women of God. Amen. Good morning, ladies. It's, it's such a such a treat to be able to be with you guys. Um, when I was asked to uh, do First Thess two, I was super excited because I, I just love this text, and uh, it's just been such an encouragement to me. And, and my prayer is that it'll be a real encouragement to you, ladies, as you think about your own your own ministry. Um, before we dive in, I did give I did nerd out on you guys. I did this last year, so um, I gave you last year's um, diagram. And uh, if you didn't get one, there's, there's, there, we have more. So I think, I'm, I think there was still, I still saw a few out there. But anyway, the reason why I gave this to you is, <clears throat> I know some of you guys love diagramming, some of you hate diagramming. So uh, this is to really polarize. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, this is really just to hopefully help to you, ladies, as you, as, as I'm kind of trying to work through this passage from, from the perspective that. Paul's driving at as he's putting on paper in an inspired letter an evaluation of his own ministry. Um, I want you to be able to see where I'm getting these points from, and um, so it might be it might be helpful for for you guys who love diagramming. You you'll probably just be able to follow through that and just say, "Wow, that's great! That's super helpful." If you don't like diagramming, I think the value of it is just as I'm making these points, I'm going to try to point you back to where we're at in the passage, and you can kind of see how it's how it's structured, but. <clears throat> The reason why this is super helpful for me as I try to study the Bible is because, I'm um, real simply, you know, you think about uh, the scriptures. We we know and we love the fact that we have an infallible access 
to God's heart and mind in the scriptures. I mean, there is, it is flawless. It is infallible. It is inherent. It is necessary. It is sufficient. Um, it is authoritative. And it is clear. I mean, what an incredible, this priceless treasure is God's word. That I have access to God's heart and mind, and I don't have to doubt, is this really God's heart and mind? No, this actually is. It is clear, and it is totally sufficient for everything I need to know about myself, and about God, and about the world. And we know that from Grace Bible Church. We, you guys are well-versed in that, and these, these are convictions that we share. It's not enough, though, to come to a passage and just say, I, I know this doesn't have flaws. Like, right? It's, if I looked at 1 Thess 2, and if I look at this diagram, and I see probably 20 lines, each of those is grammatically a clause, so there's a subject and verb relationship, or at least a, an adverbial participle, or an adverbial infinitive, and that might mean nothing to you, but at least there's, there's something going on in each of those lines where an, an action or an idea is being contributed to this whole paragraph, this whole argument, this whole discussion. And it's not enough to just recognize, I know that every single one of those lines is flawless and true. I haven't yet gotten to what I need to get to until I can really appreciate what each of those equally true lines is uniquely contributing to the argument as a whole. And that's why a diagram like this is so helpful, because even as I'm going through the text and just trying to figure out how do all these true statements, these equally true statements, how do they contribute to what's happening here, I'm sitting there even feeling my own heart exposed and indicted as I'm looking at this argument unfold in front of me, and, oh, wow, this is what he's saying, and this is how this argument goes, and this is why he's saying it, and so, so on and so forth. So, you know, if you, if you look at this diagram real quickly, you'll notice there's a real incredible repetition to it. There's a real symmetry to it. And um, I tried to show that to you in the highlights there. 1A, 3, 5A, and 7A. I'm sorry, 1A, 3, and 5A are all green, the 4, 4, 4. And then you see the, the contrast. Each of these points has a contrast. 2C, but, 4C, but, and 7A, but. So what Paul's doing is he's making a really uh, tight argument, and there's three reasons for what he's saying, uh, why he's saying what he's saying. Um, and so here's, here's how this works, and this is kind of like a nerdy way to introduce this text, uh, and then I'll give you a more, um, um, hopefully, hopefully a, a, a female motherly introduction to how this text works. And that's coming in just a moment, so let me continue nerding out on my nerdy introduction to this text. Uh, when I look at like the four, uh, four, four, all those three fours right here, that, that's that's actually answering a question that we can ask of Paul. And uh, the the four statement really answers a why question. And it's not why did something happen. It's really Paul, why did you say that? Why did you say that? On what basis can you say that? And when you go back to First Thessalonians chapter one, you realize he's made some pretty bold statements. And I think that was in your assignment, right, to read First Thess. So if you go back real quickly in your Bible to First Thess 1, and um, we'll, we're going to kind of use chapter 1 also to introduce this chapter 2, because that's obviously what Paul does. But notice in chapter 1, verse 4, Paul makes this statement, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Paul says, I know your elect. Whoa. Wow. How in the world could Paul know the Thessalonians were elect? Isn't election the mysterious secret will of God? 
does Paul know this? And so the question then, when you get to verse 5, and see in verse 5 how it starts with that same word, for? Well, when I see it that, that way, and this is the way Paul's regularly using it, is he's answering a, how could you say that, Paul, type of question. So when I go back to verse 4, knowing, beloved, that God elected you, knowing he chose you sovereignly. On what basis, Paul, could you possibly say such a profound... I mean, that just sounds just absurd that you would even say that. On what basis can you say that? He answers that question in verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He's actually able to say, I know God's election of you because I know that the power and the spirit with which my message came to you was demonstrated in tangible ways. And so I'm not making it up when I say, I think you're elect. He's actually pointing, there's reasons for why he can say that. Which is fascinating because now look at verse 3. Go back to verse 3. He says, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. And so he goes on to say, look, I see your response to the gospel. And I know that, I know that you're elect not only because in verse 5, it, the, power, the gospel came with power in the Holy Spirit, but just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Well, what's so fascinating about this, what Paul's doing here, is he's saying, look, I know my ministry to the Thessalonians was not wasted. I know it wasn't vain because I saw it come with power and you actually saw my character. That's not what I expect Paul to say at that point. I'll just be honest. When I'm sitting there thinking theologically, okay, you know, you know, you know God's election with regard to the Thessalonians? What? And his answer is, yeah, because the gospel came with power and you know my character. Huh. That's pretty compelling and somewhat strange, I'll be honest, to say that that's actually how I know that my ministry was useful and effective among you because you know my character. And, and that's what he ends up doing in chapter 2 is he starts explaining how transparent his ministry was with the Thessalonians and that's actually the basis for his evaluation of ministry. So I know that um, I, I think that you guys are probably not used to a blank page. As uh, Rachel <laughs> asked me yesterday, she's like, oh, here's what, this is what the ladies had last time. Is that good? I'm like, oh, great. Yeah, that's fine. And then they're like, well, they're kind of expecting you to teach from that. I'm like, oh, I, it's a little too late. to t- <laughs> I, I, I'm not that good. So I kind of just said, I'll probably kind of do what I had prepared. But um, So I hope that's not unhelpful for you, ladies. But I am going to give you some questions up front here. First of all, if I was just diving into First Thess 2, knowing that Paul can say in chapter 1, okay, I know your election, and the reason why is because the gospel came with power and you know my character. Um, he's going to get into this discussion about his own evaluation of ministry. So that's really the first general question, and this is going to be a little bit less helpful. We're going to get a little more specific here. But generally, how do I evaluate my ministry? So you ladies are looking at opportunities that you have, that God's given you. You have various roles. You have various circles of influence. And so you might be thinking of particular relationships where you have opportunity to speak truth to someone. Uh, you might have uh, bonds in the, in the body of Christ where you actually have a real privilege to be able to shoulder a burden with a sister in Christ. Uh, you might be thinking about opportunities to minister to your husband, to minister to children. Uh, so you think about whatever circle of influence, wherever you're at, 
that ministry is given to you by God, and the question is, the general question is, well, how do I evaluate that ministry? So, ladies, how do you know whether your ministry has been faithful? How do you know if your ministry is right and what it ought to be? So, here's the, here's the general answer, and then we're going to work to some specific questions that I'm not going to answer for you, that you'll have to answer in your, in your discussions. The answer to how do I evaluate my ministry is simply, as Paul shows us in very specific fashion in this passage, pure and godly motives. Pure and godly motives. Your, your ministry cannot be evaluated by the, the, the externals. It cannot be evaluated by what it looks like. Uh, your, your ministry is not evaluated by what your sisters in Christ think about your ministry. It's not actually even evaluated by what your husband thinks about your uh, role. Uh, that's important to know, but that's not your evaluation of successful ministry. It's your pure and godly motives. That's what Paul tells us. So now the more specific question becomes, so then how do I evaluate my motives in ministry? How do I recognize my motives in ministry? So that's the nerdy introduction. Here's a, here's a more wellspring introduction, hopefully. Um, I, re- I know, you know, when we had, April and I had our, our firstborn, we, we were living in an apartment in Montrose, California, um, and uh, it was just sweet. The Lord gave us a, a child right, like he was born like the week after I graduated seminary, and uh, so we're sitting there, we're living in California, and um, Micah is you know a few weeks old, and and you know as a as a dad, there's just really not much I can really do. It's just kind of like <laughs> man, this is you know. But one night he was not sleeping well, and he'd already been fed, and he was you know changed and everything. Just there's just there's nothing. He's just he's just being a grumpy baby. He's just not having a good night. And so that's one where an area where I could jump in and help. So I said, okay, you take a break. And then I jumped up and I grabbed him. And I'm just kind of pacing the um, the apartment. And I, re- I remember just ha- in that moment, you know, three or four weeks old. And I remember just praying, Lord, use this life for your kingdom. And to my shame, I, I'm I'm pretty sure. I don't remember exactly. I mean, who knows whose whose memory is perfect. I'm pretty sure my, my prayer was probably loaded with a lot of expectations. Very, very modest expectations, I'm sure, that he's going to, you know, be a preacher, and he's going to look like Martin Luther, and he's going to, whatever, I don't know. I don't know what was in my, in my mind when I'm praying this, just use him for your kingdom. Uh, but there's all sorts of things that are attached to it that, no doubt would be connected to something that would be very visible and very tangible, very recognizable. And it's just interesting to think about if, if that were the evaluation of ministry, how unfortunate that standard would be. Um, you know, and I can, I can imagine, you know, the... the expectations that we might have if we were trying to evaluate our relationships in the body of Christ, if we're trying to evaluate our parenting, if we have expectations about our marriage, expectations about how our kids are going to turn out. And, and it, you know, it just dawned on me if over the next several years, um, realizing, um, man, you know, God's given us a child that just is not typical in, in a lot of major categories and a lot of major areas. And as I get, even as I got wisdom from the church and from the wisest people I knew in parenting, there was kind of a, just a typical, traditional articulation of faithful parenting that we were like, oh, everybody's saying the same thing. 
And then along comes our second, and we're like, oh, that's why they say that. And we realized, I, I don't, we were just kind of lacking in answers at times. And it just kind of helped us, it tempted us at times to feel like, I don't even know if I'm faithful. Am I even being faithful as a dad? And so the standard of how we evaluate our ministry is, is absolutely critical. And, um, and I think that's what this text is going to help us with. How do we evaluate our ministry? Paul looks at his ministry and he evaluates it on the basis of motives. Notice in verse 2, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 1, 4, he's still making a case for how he knew that the Thessalonians were elect. A lot of it, especially in verses um, three, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 1, verse 7 and 8 and a nine, it has to do with the Thessalonians' response. But in chapter 1, verse 5, and in verse 6, it has to do with their own character, their own godliness, and then the fact that the Thessalonians followed them in their godliness. And when he picks it back up in chapter 2, he says, For you yourselves know. And here's what's important. We're gonna, I'm going to read this passage here in just a moment. As I read this, I want you to recognize how many times you hear the, 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 the apostles say, as you know, just as you know, or as, as, um, as you recall. So let's read verses 1 to 13 and kind of keep a tally. As you know, you yourselves know, or for you recall. Just think about that and hear how many times it keeps coming up. Verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know... We had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amidst much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we had been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. Even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know, how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. This um, passage is so clearly 
standing on the transparency of Paul's ministry that it wouldn't even work. This letter falls apart if the Thessalonians don't know Paul so well at an intimate way, at an, in a transparent fashion, that he could make a statement about his motives and then say, oh, that's absolutely Paul. That's absolutely his motives. That's what he's after. That's, that's what motivates him. That's what drives him. Yeah, look at all this zeal. But man, he's driven by these pure motives. That's what he's after. That's what he wants. We know it. And so he just keeps saying, as you know, as you know, God is witness. You're witnesses. You recall this. You know this. You saw this. And so he's able to say that. And that's really compelling. That's very, it's a very attractive pattern for ministry that he can just say, look, you, you, my, my, my ministry, my heart, my motives, it's an open book. And you, you, you've seen my ministry among you. And so in, in this argument that starts in verse 1, there, as I mentioned, there's this really tight parallelism. E- each one of these arguments is another um, reason why he can point to his purity of his motives of his ministry. Um, and what these, these each section, verses 1 and 2, verses 3 and 4, and then verses 5 through 8, those three sections are each going to contribute another, uh, maybe you could say, uh, a litmus test. But how to evaluate my motives in ministry? Each one of those sections of this, of this epistle are going to give a new, um, another important motive that needs to be in my heart that's driving me when I minister and when I serve in the body of Christ. This needs to be true of my heart. So each of these sections kind of gives us another specific of that general question, how do I evaluate my motives? Well, then we can go to verse 1 and 2 and say, how do I evaluate this motive in 3 and 4, that motive in 5 through 8, that motive? So that's how we're going to kind of work through this together this morning. Let's start in verse 1. This first, and and every single one of these points is the same. There's a statement of what his ministry was not contrasted with what his ministry is. Okay, so that's why when he says 4 in verse 1, but, verse 2, he can say, my ministry was motivated not by this, but by this. The first pair is this. It's not emptiness, but boldness. It's not, he wasn't, he didn't come with an empty ministry. He came with a bold ministry. And I like outlining it that way because that's exactly what Paul says. And on the face of it, it doesn't make sense. Is that the right contrast, Paul? I mean, if, Paul, if you're going to contrast emptiness, shouldn't you say something like substantive? Or if you're going to contrast something to boldness, shouldn't it be timidity? What a weird contrast. He contrasts an empty ministry with a bold ministry. That, that's exactly what he says. So we gotta, let's, let's pay attention to why he says that. Verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. In other words, his arrival in the Thessalonica to minister the gospel was not empty, vain. It wasn't wasted. It wasn't squandered. This is not an empty ministry. It wasn't an empty effort. It wasn't something that he put his hand to and it just turned to dust. He's able to say, I didn't come to you. Our coming was not in vain. Look at Paul's boldness. Verse 2. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amidst much opposition. Okay, to, to appreciate this strange contrast, it just it, it, it's not logical to contrast an empty ministry with a bold ministry. To understand this, we've got to pay attention to, the, to where he's at. And so let's just go back real quick to Acts and look at what happened in Philippi and then how he got to Thessalonica, because this explains a lot. If you go to Acts 16, 
verses 19 to 24. Here's what happened in Philippi. And again, in, in our passage, he refers to what happened in Philippi and says, as you know. So clearly, the Thessalonian believers knew what happened in Philippi because he points. To, he says that so much in verse 2. But here's what they would have known, and here's what would have been in their mind when they read verse 2. He would have, they would have thought of this story. Verse 19, Acts 16, verse 19. When her masters saw that their hope of their prophet was gone, this is the, this is the woman who had the, the unclean spirit, and she was, you know prophesying, she's like a fortune teller. She's, she's doing palm reading, the equivalent of palm reading, and they're making money off of her. And when they saw that their hope of profit was gone because the apostles cast out the demon, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or observe, being Romans. So the contrast is between them being Jews, us being Romans, that's actually very important because Philippi was a Roman colony. They're trying to maintain an independent city-state status in the Roman Empire. And Luke is actually documenting that Paul's entire ministry never violated Pax Romana. He's actually documenting all of that. And that's why this is such an important story. But here's what happened. Verse 22, crowd rises up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore off their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods when they had struck them with many blows. They threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So they get beat black and blue, thrown in the stocks. And as you know, this comes in a great earthquake. Uh, the, the, the graves are busted open. I mean, the, the prison cells are busted open. And the prison uh, warden is about to commit suicide because he's like, they're going to take my life. And he's like, don't do it, don't do it. They preach the gospel to him. He repents. He believes. They show up the next day. And, uh, you're going to... Uh, send us away after not even realize I'm a Roman citizen. You're a Roman citizen? Can you please get out of here quietly? Fast forward to chapter 17. When they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, that's an important verse um, because this is on the, on the, the, the um, Via Ignatia. This is a major highway in uh, the uh, Roman Empire, and on, if you start at uh, Philippi and you go to Thessalonica on the Via Ignatia, you're going to cross Amphipolis and Apollonia. It, it, it's, uh, you know, one commentator, I. Howard Marshall, points out that it's 33 miles to Amphipolis, it's 27 miles to Am Apollonia, and then 35 miles to Thessalonica. Those distances could represent one day's journey on horseback or by wagon or whatever, some sort of you know animal that would be uh, carrying you or driving you. It really seems like when Paul mentions that when they traveled through these, when Luke says that Paul and the, and the group traveled through those cities, it could actually be those are the stops. Uh, I can't prove that. It just, but obviously they went through those cities. But those each would have been one day journey. Here's what's fascinating about that. It's likely that three days, it's a three days journey from Philippi to Thessalonica. It's likely that Paul shows up in Thessalonica three days after getting beaten back black and blue. You just think about how transparent can you really be? I mean, here's like, can't even take his tunic off without the scabs getting ripped open. The swelling is already starting to turn purple and it's like, it's like at its prime. I mean, this is very fresh and they are seeing a man who's willing to count the cost because he loves the gospel. 
And there's a real transparency even in the fact of the timing of it all and his motives being shown for being pure. So now, let's go back to our passage. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 and, 1 and 2 again. What a profound picture this is that they knew, as you know, verse 2, that we had previously suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, and they didn't even evoke their Roman citizen privilege, and, and they would in, in Jerusalem because it wouldn't have had the same effect, but in, in, in Philippi, this Roman colony, where you just preach the gospel and you have new converts, they actually didn't even invoke their Roman citizenship privilege so that they got beat, and then afterwards they have the authorities on their heels. That became a protection for the Christians who were left behind. And they see that. The Thessalonians know that about Paul. What a transparent testimony of his ministry. So now here comes the question. Paul, why are you contrasting emptiness with boldness? Why not emptiness and substantive? Why not timidity and bold? Think about the lie of having the right content in our ministry. Maybe if we think about relationships with sisters in the body of Christ, maybe you're thinking about um, with your husbands, maybe you're thinking about with your children, in whatever circle of influence, in whatever your ministry, it doesn't matter, but in whatever your ministry is, just think about those responsibilities and those privileges and those opportunities. Think about the, 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 the absurdity of having the right message without boldness. There's an element where that's actually a helpful test of our motives. There's something about boldness with a message that is supernaturally offensive and could cost us that is actually telling evidence of our sincerity, of our pure motives in ministry. And that's just just, an, just a helpful way to think about it. Paul's doing some tremendous service in verse 1 and 2 by putting his finger on this motive for ministry that he can actually say, I know my ministry wasn't empty because I was bold. That contrast is so unexpected, it's actually jarring. And now I get the privilege of thinking about my own ministry and saying, well, why am I saying what I'm saying? Am I speaking with a life over my mouth because I'm scared? Am I only saying what I can get away with? Or am I bold because I know this is so beneficial. This is so good. This is what you need to hear. I gotta give you uh, one one Luther. You can you can tolerate one Luther illustration, right? I have I have uh, I have four. <laughs> I won't push my luck. Luther, um, you know, he was standing for the truth, and um, it was interesting that he, there was a chapter in his life, basically from around 1521, when it was climaxing at the Diet of Worms, he'd already defended it at Leipzig, and he'd already defended it at Augsburg, and they call him to Worms, and they promise him right of safe passage, and they did the same for John Huss 100 years earlier, and then they killed him anyway, so he, he kind of knows what that means. And he shows up, and on his way to um, Worms, he had several friends who actually thought he was right, doctrinally. They thought his message was right, and they rebuked him for his boldness. Uh, Bernard Adelman was a canon of Augsburg, and he said, I am much afraid that the worthy man must give way at last before the avarice and power of the partisans of indulgences. 
His representations have produced to little effect that the Bishop of Augsburg, our primate and metropolitan, has just ordered in the Pope's name fresh indulgences for St. Peter's at Rome. Let him haste to secure the aid of princes. Let him beware of tempting God, for he must be void of common sense if he look, overlooks the imminent peril he incurs. I mean, here's here's a, a canon, a leader in the church looking at Luther, and he's kind of saying, well, I think he's pretty, he's a worthy guy, but he's pretty foolish if he thinks he can get away with this, uh, you know, plucking at the powers that be. Albert Krantz was a famous historian, and on his deathbed in Hamburg, he said, you are right, Brother Martin, but you will not succeed. Poor monk, go to your cell and cry, Lord, have mercy on me. The Bishop of Brandenburg he said, in your thesis on indulgences, I see nothing opposed to the Catholic truth. I myself condemn these indiscreet proclamations. But for the love of peace, and for regard to your bishop, discontinue writing upon the subject. I mean, it's like, they're reading what he's saying and comparing it to Scripture. Like, yeah, you're, what you said is right, but cut it out, because this is just going to be way too much trouble. And so, Luther had to just literally count the cost of even his own friends. To just say, I, I, I can't, I can't silence my conscience if, if this is the gospel, and this is true, and the people of Germany need to hear the truth. And so, he had all these, you know, and you, you can imagine just the absurdity of having the right message without the, the boldness. I mean, it's not even believable, right? Like, if, if, if my house is on fire, and I'm asleep, and you come over to my house, and you're so timid, you're afraid to wake me up, and you're just barely knocking on Hey, John, April... You guys, you guys awake? Your house is on fire. If I actually heard that, I'd be like, of course it's not on fire. Because if it was on fire, you would be so bold. You'd be like throwing a brick through my window. Get out of there before you die. The timidity just disproves the, the, the validity of the message. And so imagine if we actually had the right message, but we were so timid because we loved ourselves more than the message that would undo the message. And so there's an element where that's a helpful test of our, of our motives for ministry. And I think even as a parent... I mean, it's just interesting, isn't it? It's interesting as a parent, the tug on our heart, because we want, we love our kids. We want a relationship with our kids. And there's times where, especially, especially, I mean, I think about this a lot. We were just talking about this recently. Um, why even parents sometimes leave a good church to go to a ministry that their unbelieving children are attracted to because they're afraid that their unbelieving children don't like a ministry that's just standing exclusively on the Word of God. So then we make a decision about where we go to church because the unbelievers in our, our family like another ministry better. And we think about the fear that goes along with, but my kids don't, they're not compelled by truth. Well, then what do they need? Timidity, capitulation, compromise? <laughs> Lovingly, keep speaking truth. Lovingly. And that requires, like, that's a tremendous cost because I love my kids and there's part of that self-loving aspect of me that I just want it to go well and I just want it to be all roses and just, they want, man, just like, you know, dad's just the greatest thing and he's my best friend and when they leave home, they're going to be like, yeah, let's just hang out and hit golf balls together. You know, it's like, I mean, I get it. It's like, it's just a natural temptation. We just, we want that. And, and, that's, and if you didn't want that, you're obviously a bad parent. The point is, you should want that. But when you're... When that becomes a, when you start, you, you be actually become timid with truth that would be offensive to those that you love, that's a helpful evaluation of your motive for ministry. That's number one. And so, if you think about this, um, 
it's not emptiness, but boldness. Well, the, the motive here is boldness with offensive truth. Boldness with offensive truth. And so that's, when, you, when you're asking the question, how do I evaluate my motives? In verses 1 and 2, ask yourself, how do I evaluate my actual boldness or versus my timidity? How do I know that my parenting, how do I know that my relationships in the body of Christ are not vain? And you can't evaluate that on how well the relationship goes. Because there's going to be times where you and a sister in Christ, you might be tense. You've you got to evaluate your motives because you could have contributed to that. And then, if so, then great, you have an opportunity to make it right. But just the fact that there's tension in a horizontal relationship doesn't mean that that's the valuation of your ministry. It's, it's, again, it's a valuation of your motives. Why? Why are those things there? Um, number two. Number two. Second motivation is motivation to please God. Here's the negative. Not trickery. That's verse three. But, verse 4, truth. Trickery versus truth. This is a fascinating comparison. And this one makes a lot more sense, because trickery versus truth, obviously those are at odds with one another. So on the very face of it, the contrast makes perfect sense. But we want to take this, and we want to benefit from um, Paul's transparent evaluation of his own motives for ministry, and we want to apply this to our own ministry. Verse 3, For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but... But, here's the contrast. If that's what his ministry was not motivated by, it is this. But, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Okay, let's take this one at a time. Verse 3. The negative is trickery. Trickery. It's interesting how... He draws out this, this trickery that would really ruin ministry. There's three words. Error, impurity, or deceit. If there was error in his ministry, um, you know, that would have ruined his ministry. His ministry, that, that, that's, a, that's, that's something that would actually hinder ministry effectiveness. Not what it looks like, but actually having error in my own motives for ministry. If I have the wrong motive for why I'm doing ministry. Next is impurity. So if it's erroneous, an erroneous ministry, or an impure motive for ministry, or third, even by way of deceit, there would be a deception for why I'm doing ministry. I make it appear like what I'm really after, son, is your eternal welfare, but then secretly what I'm really motivated by is I just want you to think highly of me. Right? That would be a, that would be a deceptive cover for my actual motives in ministry. Paul says, look, man, that didn't mark any of my ministry with you. Um, what, a, what, a, what a great statement. He has a clean conscience about his motives. Why did he go to Thessalonica? Why did he say the things he said? Why did he do what he did for at least three Sabbaths? He was there at least three Sabbaths, if not more. And for, let's just say he had 21 days. 21 days of ministry, and he can say, I had a clean conscience for my ministry. I, it wasn't motivated out of error. It wasn't impure. And it didn't have deceit covering up some false ministry motive. Instead, look at verse 4. Verse 4 is just, Lord, we could spend the rest of our morning in verse 4. Just as we have been approved by God to, to be entrusted with the gospel, that's how we speak. This word, um, and I'm reading the NAS, the, the verb have been approved. That's a word, um, it's a great word, I love that word, the, the Greek word dakimazo is a word that the Greeks would have used to um, 
to test and approve of something. You'd have to go through a rigorous test, and you come out on the end, and it becomes it's 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 proven, approved. So it requires the testing and then the approval of it. The opposite, adakimazo, adakimas, means reprobate. It means to be tested and then found wanting, so it's rejected. So this is the word that's tested and then approved. So, you know, like when I got a pair of jeans when I was a kid, there was like the, you know, the, the stickers inside the pocket and say inspected by 32, inspected by 24 or whatever. And these, these inspectors would, you know, do a quality control, make sure the jeans, you know, didn't have three legs or whatever. So they're looking for flaws in the, in the manufacturing. Well, that means there's somebody who's taking that material and they're evaluating it and they're saying, does this meet our specs? And when it meets the spe- specifications, they, it's approved. Um, my, my, um, my wedding band here, um, this is bona fide sterling silver, ladies. I know you're impressed by that. So that means it's 92.5% pure silver, and it's stamped 92.5 on the inside. So that means there has to be a refining process to remove uh, enough of the impurities that you're left with 92.5% of this is actually just pure silver. That can't be a, so much impurity that it's less than that, or it's not qualified as bona fide sterling. So there has to be an evaluation, a testing, a refining, and at the end of that process, stamp it 92.5. It's approved. Paul's saying, look, we have, we've been tested and approved to be entrusted with the gospel. <laughs> this is incredible. I don't I think about that. Like, this just every time I read this verse, as a pastor, as a dad, as a husband, it's just such a rebuke. Like, are you kidding me? Like, I've been entrusted with the gospel? That's got to affect how I speak. And he says, just as in, this, in a corollary fashion to what we've been entrusted with, that's how we speak. So notice the comparison is the being entrusted, the, the approved to be entrusted with the gospel, and just as we've been approved for that task, that is a corollary to how we speak. So how do we speak? We don't speak as pleasing men. What a great test of ministry motive. Is what I say motivated by pleasing people? Is what I'm saying motivated by <laughs> winning friends and influencing people? As the book title says. Um, is it motivated by what my kids want to hear? Is it motivated by um, what's going to, um, that I think somebody else will be impressed by? Or is it motivated by a desire to please God? That's, the, that's where he goes. Not pleasing men, but God. So first of all, your first test of ministry motive here is, who, who, am, I at? who am I trying to please? Who am I trying to impress? Who am I put, trying to put a smile on the, on, on the face? If I'm trying to put a smile on God's face, I will be, by definition, loving to the brethren. 1 John 5, verse 2 says that. You cannot be any more loved. This is love for the brethren, that you love God and obey his commandments. So if I'm governed and ruled by this singular desire to please God, I will be, by definition, loving to the brethren and the sisters in this church. So... Not pleasing men, but pleasing God. But that's still not enough. Because now what does it mean to please God? Like, what, what aspect of pleasing God? How do I think about what it means to please God in my ministry motives? And that's where Paul goes next. Not pleasing, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Wow. That really, that really gives us a lot of focus, doesn't it, ladies? Because now it's like, suddenly my, my, my evaluation isn't, 
you know, as a pastor, you might, okay, my, 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 my preaching and my counsel and my, the, the words that I share to, to, you know, to a person in need or um, visitation when they were sick or what, you know, you start thinking about these tangibles. As a parent, their GPA and their, you know, graduating from Harvard Law, summa cum laude, and, and they finished their degree you know, even after being drafted into the NFL and gave me all the credit for all of their successes. I mean, it's like, what is the valuation of, like, what, 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 what's, what's the valuation here? It's pleasing God who examines our, not our kid's GPA, not our kid's productivity, not the effectiveness, not the appearance of influence, not the, the uh, horizontal nature of fruit, the tangible nature of fruit. None of that. It's God who examines our hearts. That is so convicting and liberating all at once, isn't it? So convicting and so liberating. Because suddenly, the evaluation for your ministry, ladies, is, is God pleased with your heart? You, you, you ladies might be faithfully pleasing the Lord in a ministry or an area of responsibility that everyone around you might have the false notion this person is not faithful. Now, if everybody's saying that, then you probably should you listen. But still, the point should be, the point is, is that's not the actual evaluation. That's not the actual evaluation. The actual evaluation is, is God pleased with my heart? Is he pleased with my motives? Not the productivity, not the influence, not the tangibles. Was my heart pure? I thought about that driving over here, and I'm just thinking, like, Lord, I gotta teach first test too. And man, I mean, I've never gotten into this text without being convicted. Um, and I, and I hope I would never be able to be in this text without being convicted until I'm glorified, because there's still, there's always refining that has to happen in my motives for ministry. But that is the test. God who examines our hearts. Paul says, We have this as our ambition, whether in the body or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ in order that he might recompense each one for the deeds done in the body, whether good or evil. That's his ambition. Paul's singular ambition was to be pleasing to God. To please God. To put a smile on his face. Let me show you a couple examples of this. And I, I, don't, you know, I don't want to do cross-referencing and get distracted from Paul's argument. But I, I do want to show you some texts that are saying the same thing just by way of helping us apply this. Um, let's quickly look at um, John 5. John 5 is so helpful because when it comes to the motives in ministry, you realize that at the largest level, these motives are, would actually, not only would they prevent you in the narrow focus, they might prevent you from faithful ministry. They would prevent you from salvation, Jesus says. Look at John 5, verses 43 and 44. John 5, verses 43 and 44. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Man, that is helpful. If somebody is after their own glory, 
person they're going to follow is modeling vainglory. If I'm pursuing my own glory, the only children that I'm going to have a positive effect on, can I even say it that way, have an actual influence on, would be the kids who want their own glory. And in the body of Christ, if I'm after my own glory, the only people who I'd have a positive influence on are after their own glory. And that's the only positive, which is obviously negative. If somebody's after God's glory, and they're seeking the glory of the one and only God, they're, they're sticking to His words, and they want His glory to be put on display, and they want it to be done in His way and His means, then the people who are going to follow are people who are interested in God's glory. That's just the way it goes with ministry. And so you evaluate motives, you've got to look at, what am I after? What's motivating me? Am I doing this to please God, or am I doing this to impress men? Galatians 1, Paul says the same thing in different words. Galatians 1, verse 10, remember that line? Um, <clears throat> Galatians 1, 10. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant or a slave of Christ. You, you, can't, you can't be a slave to Christ's will, to God's will, if you're gripped by um, seeking the favor of people, seeking the favor, the favor of men. And so when Paul says, look, we, we came to you in the same way that God um, tested and approved us to be entrusted with the gospel, in that manner, corollary to that supernatural reality, that actually governs how we speak. Not as pleasing men, but as pleasing God who examines our heart motive. I want God to be pleased with my motive for my ministry. My motive for why I do what I do, say what I say. And that starts to cut through all sorts of selfish motives and uh, forms of self-love and um, decisions being made about how I would use my time or uh, why I would say what I would say. And it cuts through all of that. And it's so convicting and so liberating because suddenly it's like, I don't, I don't have to evaluate my ministry based on all these tangibles, all these external criteria. And when that becomes your, ladies, when that becomes your evaluation for ministry, it's an encouragement when you've been faithful and it doesn't look the way that you wanted it to look. And it's a conviction when it might look the way you want it to look, but you actually had really lousy motives. And so that becomes really, really helpful. All right, let's look at the last one. We've got a few minutes, we've got 10 minutes left. The last one is verses 5 through 8. Um, so verse 1 was not emptiness, but verse 2, boldness. Verse 3, not trickery, but verse 4, truth. And now, not selfish, verses 5 and 6, but selfless, verses 7 and 8. And by the way, I haven't been, I haven't been, I uh, should have been saying this as we work through this passage. Uh, as I was looking at this text, I was trying to think through what is the, what is the source of these pure motives? Where do these pure motives come from? And this might be, this might be something that you might want to write down on your outline there that might be helpful for your discussion questions as well. In verses 1 and 2, when he makes that contrast between emptiness and boldness, the source of that is a fear of God and knowledge of his power. That's the source of that. And so that's a helpful truth to think about as we evaluate our, our motives in ministry. In verses 3 and 4, not trickery, but truth, 
The source of that is a desire to please God and a knowledge of his authority. In other words, knowledge that he's the one who's authorized this. He's the one who's called me to be a fill-in-the-blank. Uh, mom, a discussion leader, a friend on the phone to this woman in need. Fill-in-the-blank, whatever you're, you're, you're describing or thinking of. It's a desire to please God and a knowledge of his authority. Any influence cannot come through me. It must come from God. Um, and so that's why there's no trickery but commitment to the truth. And now, on this contrast between selfish and selfless motives, the source of selflessness is a love of God's people and a knowledge of his glory. So how do we get this freedom from ourselves, freedom from selfish motives? Verse 5, For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. Let's pause right there. This is the negative. It's negative. It's, it's, it's Paul saying, look, I didn't come with flattering speech. Flattering speech is what you say when you want something from someone. Flattering speech is saying something to their face that you wouldn't say behind their back. <laughs> it's like the opposite of gossip, right? Um, and so when you flatter, you're, you're saying, I think I, I think I know what this person would want to hear, and I think it's going to help me get what I want from this person. It's so corrupt. It is just an absolute perversion of the use of language that should be fueled by truth and a desire to build up and to edify. Um, The way I've said it in the past is flattery is the currency when greed is the economy. You know, when, when, you're, when you're after something selfish, you know, the, the capital that you have to spend to get it is going to be flattery. And that's, that's, people know that. They know it intuitively. Uh, they feel like they've been greased. They feel like they haven't been cared for. Um, and so Paul says, no, you know, you, you know this. Uh, we never came with flattering speech, nor with a pretext for greed. Pretext would just kind of be, think of mask. Pretext could also, it is a word that can be associated with like a use of a mask, of a covering, that's a cover-up. So pretext would be like a cover-up for greed. Um, so there's like an appearance, it's like I'm trying to make it look like I'm not greedy, but then I actually am greedy, so I have to have a pretext. So it's like this covering for that greedy motive. He's like, we never came with that either. God is witness. I mean, that's just so profound that he can say that. Um, his conscience is totally clear. Um, verse 6, nor did we seek glory from men. And that's exactly what we just saw from John, from Jesus in John 5, and what we saw from Paul in Galatians 1.10. Paul's saying, look, I never sought glory from you. I didn't seek glory from you or from others. Um, even though, he says, as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. I mean, he's sitting there saying, I, I have, if you want to you talk about um, glory from men, I can just say, look, I'm an eyewitness. Look, Christ showed up to me on the Damascus Road. Look. Look at all the experience I've had. Look at the revelation I've been given. Look at, the, look at my influence. And I'm, I, I'm, writing, I'm writing inspired letters. And he says, look, that's not, that has nothing to do with why I would minister the way I minister. And I, I never appealed to that. I never sought any you know, glory from you. I, I've, been, I've been, actually didn't carry myself that way at all. Here's the contrast, verse 7 and 8. Instead of selfish motive for ministry, it's selfless. Verse 7 and 8. But we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Uh, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Uh, these two verses are 
uh, you know, use a word picture that is very familiar to many of you in this room. He proved to be gentle among you. And, and, and the, the, the thing about a nursing mother caring for her child is the absolute sacrifice of it. I mean, there's just, what has a nursing mother ever gotten from an infant? You, you know, you're going to have a ton of answers. You know, oh, it's just the, the privilege of it. It's just the affection of it. You know, I get, okay, yeah. But like, the congratulations. Mom, thank you so much. You're so, it's like, no, it's like the kid doesn't even talk. There's like, there's no, there's no r- 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 payback. There's no, you know, um, patting on the back. I mean, it's like pulling the hair, maybe, you know, it's just like, whatever. It's like, there's no thanks. There's just no gratitude. I was so impressed by, you know, April, you know, when we had, we had our, uh, well, we had four, but starting with number one, it's like, you know, April goes from the, the most heavy sleeper to all of a sudden, I mean, you know, she could sleep through like a truck driving through the apartment, and then all of a sudden, it's like the slightest noise, and she's just up, and, you know, and, and I mean, I'm the exact opposite, you know, I think, I think for the first, I think our first two children, maybe, I probably asked you about like five times, like, hey, the baby slept through the night. <laughs> like, he didn't sleep through the night. <laughs> you jerk, you slept through the whole thing. <laughs> and I'm like, I have no, I was like, it took me two kids to realize Whatever you say, don't assume the kid slept through the night because I am so unaware. And it's just like that intuitive, like, you know, the nurturing instinct that God gives a mom. And there's just something so selfless, so sacrificial, and there's no payback. What a great word picture for Paul to say, look, that was my my motive in ministry. Um, It cost me. He says in verse 8, Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. And I'll just be honest, ladies. Um, I mean, it's, I think with parenting, of course, you know, you, you probably have a pretty quick, I would hope you have a pretty quick check when it gets costly. It, there's probably just a lot of natural love that would overcome that. And ministry in the church it's so sweet because we love one another by the grace of the Holy Spirit. But we have to examine ourselves and say, you know, when ministry is difficult, we've got to examine, do we actually just love people that we're trying to serve? Do we love them? Is love compelling enough? Is it motivating enough to just keep doing what might be costly, personally? Because Paul is actually pointing that as a proof of his motives in ministry that were pure because he continued to minister faithfully even when it cost him. And, and they knew it. They, they, they were able to say, yeah, that's true, Paul. Well, we got to be quick here. Um, I did want to get to verse 13, so I'll quickly give you a little outline for verses 9 through 12. Well, the fourth one there is proof of selflessness, and that's not on the outline, but in, verses, in verse 9, he's, he's, he's describing a no-maintenance relationship, not a low-maintenance, no-maintenance. He literally was of no complication to Thessalonians, and that was proof of his ministry motive. In verse 10, he points to blameless behavior as another proof of his selflessness. In verse 11 he, and 12, he points to his fatherly exhortation. Fatherly exhortation as proof of his selflessness. Sorry, that's, I, I just read that off really quick, I realized. Verses 9 through 12, proof of selflessness. Verse 9, no maintenance. No maintenance. Instead of a low maintenance. Verse 10, blameless behavior. Blameless behavior. Uh, verses 11 and 12, fatherly exhortation. And then you get to verse 13. 
and he comes to a, starts to come to a sort of conclusion. And he, he gives a gratitude for the fact that they embrace this divine message. And this actually is so sweet and super helpful for us as we evaluate our ministry motives. Verse 13, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you accepted it. And to understand that, we've got to pay attention to the two different words, receive and accept receive and accept. They're synonyms. They're synonyms, but um, by way of semantic domain, there's maybe an overlap here, like if I do two, two circles. That's not even visible for some of you, probably not even helpful. <laughs> you circle here and a circle here. These two words, there's this overlap of to, to receive something. But the connotation difference is the first word, when you received it, that means there's a possession. So I have something. The second word, accept, is a reception in the sense of an embracing a welcoming, a cherishing. The difference would be getting a message from a JW putting a tract on your windshield wiper. Yep, I got it. Versus accepting it, welcoming it, and receiving it, embracing it as truth. That's the difference. And so he's saying, I'm thanking God, not just that you got the message. I mean, yeah, I, you, you heard it. You heard the message. You, there's a there, cognitive reception happened. But it wasn't, that's not enough. He's thanking God that they actually embraced it and welcomed it as not the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. This is where Paul's ministry motives shine. He's able to say, I thank God that I put all of my eggs in the ministry basket of the scripture. Because then when you responded positively, it's doing its work in you who believe. And God gets all the glory and all the credit. And I can thank God constantly to see that exchange happening, that you welcome that message, not as that's Paul's opinion, as that's God's revelation. I am so thankful that you responded to it that way. And so that's a great test of our ministry motive, is just the gratitude and the humility when we put all of our eggs in the ministry basket of the scriptures, knowing that it's what alone will produce its work, accomplish its work in you who believe. All right, so hopefully that's helpful, and hopefully that gives you enough questions um, for the discussion time. But um, let me just close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for these ladies, and as we prayed before the Bible study, just we're so thankful for um, just, a, just a core of um, women in this church that love your word and love your truth and love one another, because that just has a spillover effect and a profound impact on the body life of Grace Bible Church, and we're so thankful for it. Thank you for each and every one of these ladies who are here this morning. And um, to whatever degree they're even experiencing right now, um, uh, conviction over ministry motives that they want to be to, to repent from and want to be on guard against, we would want to praise you and thank you for that and pray that your spirit would just bring quick comfort so that they could be encouraged that wherever they might be seeing something that was wrong about their ministry motive, they can see that, hey, we can, by your grace, we can change. And we can actually seek after a true motive. And, and, and for others, they, they, they might be just experiencing the comfort of your spirit where maybe they were asking questions about evaluation of their own ministry. And maybe, maybe they were evaluating it on, on the wrong criteria and were feeling like a failure, but they actually might be exonerated where you've produced pure motives in their hearts as um, ladies in this church and whatever role or influence they have in the, in the body of Christ. 
um, or in their families. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would guard our hearts from false evaluations of ministry. We are all prone to it and all tempted to it in various ways. I thank you that your Spirit's alive and active. Thank you that your Word of God is living and active. And I thank you that you will apply this to each and every um, daughter of yours in this room in a very customized way, in a way that only you can, um, because that's just what you do. That's how you minister and care to for us as your, as your children. And so, Lord, I pray that we'd always be on guard against this. I pray that you, you would liberate all of us from the, um, uh, just even like the success-driven uh, syndrome of uh, evaluating how we're doing on the wrong criteria, and um, that you would replace any of those potential wrong um, standards with this, what we see in First, Timothy, First Thessalonians 2, that we would uh, see it replaced with a desire to just be bold, uh, a desire to, to be selfless in our motives, uh, a desire to actually be gripped and governed by just the simple desire to please you. Lord, I pray that pleasing you, fearing you, putting a smile on your face, at the inner man, at the level of motive, would be enough for us. I pray that that would be enough to make us content. And regardless of appearance, and regardless of misunderstandings or judgments, I pray that we would have thick skin against that, that we would just be gripped by the desperate need to please you. Lord, help us in that, because you've entrusted us with the gospel, which is just overwhelming. We'd have the opportunity to speak the gospel to unbelieving friends, to speak the gospel to our own children, uh, to articulate truth in the body of Christ. This is, this is unreal. And so, in light of the overwhelming responsibility you've entrusted to us, I pray that we would speak simply to please you. In your name we pray. Amen.